1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing, I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way, in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and labourer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, let me ask you this morning. Would you give a few thousand dollars to your mothers, uncles, cousins, daughters, nieces, husband? Anyone? Or if he came to visit, would you be happy to have him stay at your house and give him food, shelter, and whatever else he needed? Do you even know his name? I I don't know who who that would be in my family. (laughs) We call our relatives, uh, who are several degrees of separation away from us, distant relatives. 
And it's a fitting name because most of the time we're not just distant in them from, in terms of the number of connections to us, but also we're distant from them in relationship. What about a distant relative in your Christian family? Are you willing to support brothers and sisters in Christ in far-off places that perhaps you haven't even met? As we've preached through this letter of Paul's to the Corinthians, we've seen how Paul teaches clearly on so many aspects of the body of Christ, and in particular, what it looks like in the local church. As we finish the letter this morning in chapter 16, we get a glimpse of how the body of Christ functions, not just at a local level, but on a broader scale. And we're reminded that Christ hasn't just saved you, hasn't just saved our church, but He has saved people from every nation, every tribe and tongue. And in this final chapter, Paul gives a variety of instructions and comments that are you know, not necessarily all related to one another. As in other New Testament letters, you'll find that this is a somewhat common practice. And yet, throughout the, this chapter, we see how God's church and His saints that are scattered throughout the world serve and support one another. At this time, uh, there are Christians and churches, not just in Corinth, but in Macedonia and in Jerusalem and in Galatia, as we even see in this chapter, and so many other places. Now, God shows us how His churches ought to support and to serve one another. The scattered saints, they serve the saints. And so this morning we will look at the four main sections of the text under four headings, each of which describe ways that the saints serve other saints. They do so by giving to the poor, we give to the poor, we help those who go, we give recognition to leaders, and we greet in grace. Throughout each of these sections, it's important to note that there are many cultural and practical differences between the first century and us today. But as, it, as often is with Scripture, the principle and the heart remain, and they should be applied in our time and in our context. And so with our Bibles open, with our hearts open, let's dive into what God has to say to us this morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your Word, and we thank you for the many uh, ends of letters that we have in it. God, as we dive into it this morning, may we not just see this as concluding comments or you know, a bit of an appendage, uh, an extra bit that you can just do away with in Paul's letter, but may we see in it the things that you have to say for us today and for our lives. May you open our hearts and our minds in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin at number one, give to the poor. Now in these first four verses of chapter 16, Paul gives some instructions about a collection. I'm not sure how often this happens in Australian culture, but Filipinos are big on helping family financially, even with relatives that they barely see or know. If somebody puts the call out, they will often do that. There is a strong culture of doing this, and especially when it comes to family members who live abroad and who are sending money back to the Philippines. Well, that's what Paul is doing here except with Christian family. Even though Paul doesn't specifically uh, mention money, 
this term collection was often here used to refer to a financial collection, especially for religious purposes. Paul doesn't give any more details about this particular collection here, but as Romans 15.26 tells us, this is likely talking about a fund to help the poor in the church of Jerusalem. That's most likely what this collection is all about. And as we read from his other letters, uh, Paul got the other churches involved in this collection to help these saints. As he even says here, he uh, gave the same instructions to the Galatian churches. Now, what's also interesting uh, is that Paul here gives us yet another detail about the general practice of the early church. They met on the first day of the week. Now, Jews historically met on the last day of the week, which was known as the Sabbath, and that corresponds to our Saturday, and that's still their practice today. But the early church practiced meeting on the first day of the week, uh, which is the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. And interestingly, as we see in Revelation 1.10, it seems like the church began to call this the Lord's Day. I think that's appropriate terminology and good for us to use this same, to call it the Lord's Day. One of the reasons why I think that's important is because today, most of us wouldn't even think of Sunday as the first day of the week. We would often, you know, in our culture, we have the day off. It's not a work day. And so it's a good thing for us, I think, to think of it as the Lord's Day, a day set aside for gathering with His church, hearing His Word, and setting our hearts and minds on Him. Well, Paul instructs the church to set aside money as he may prosper, meaning according to what he is able to give. Why? The reason? So that Paul won't have to do this collection himself when he arrives. But why? Why doesn't he want to do it when he arrives? Well, we, we don't know for sure. Maybe he didn't want to pressure them. I'm sure we've all been in situations where we felt pressured to give money, both in church and watching street performers or at middle markets. And perhaps he wanted to, give, to make sure that people could prepare to give, to make sure that they could give as, as much as they were able. Whatever his reason, the point was, so it would be all organized before he comes. And in verses 3 and 4, Paul gives instructions about how the collection will be taken to Jerusalem. It's important that the people who send it, who send this money, are accredited by letter. They need to be credible people who deliver it. And if it seems best that, you know, actually he should go, well, he'll go himself, he says. Now, these days, as our own church has done with our brother, Mariasa, in, in Bali, in Indonesia, you know, you just tap a few keys on a computer and you can send money all across the ocean and across the world. Well, they didn't have that back then. All sorts of things could prevent this hard-earned coin reaching its intended recipients of the poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. A Jewish historian, Josephus, he actually records an incident when four Jewish swindlers took off with a woman's money and got all the Jews banished from Rome because of what they did. You know, it's stuff like and if stuff like that happened, well, you could see why Paul would want to be careful about how the collection was handled and to ensure that it was taken care of by, by reputable, credible people who could then send it along. There was a need among poor brothers and sisters in the Jerusalem church, and the churches met it. 
And one of the things I love about this section is how the church worked together as a family to help another family in a completely different city. They are helping people that many of them likely did not even meet. I mean, they didn't have FaceTime back then. They didn't, you know, they didn't even have phones back then. So you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have known what they looked like, what they sounded like. All you'd know is, is the report and the things that are being said. Now, in our very individualized society, we often encourage Christians individually to give to other Christians individually. And it's great for us to do that. But there is a wonderful sense of oneness when a local body of saints is able to help meet the needs of another body. Now, of course, uh, in Paul's day, there weren't anywhere near as many Christians or churches in the world as there are today. In Darwin alone, there may be more churches here than there were in the world at the time of Paul writing this letter. So as Christians today, we need to recognize that this care of other churches will happen on a bigger and a broader scale. And what we ought to do is wisely discern how and whom we should support. New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner puts it this way. He summarizes how we should apply these verses. Paul teaches that giving should be systematic on the first day of the week, organized, the church takes the collection, and proportional as someone has prospered. And proportional means that even if you only have a small amount that you think might not be worth much, it is still worth doing it. So kids, that means that you know, if you get pocket money or something like that, even if you think it's not much to be able to give in service of others, well, it's good to practice doing that now. It's good to, to recognize that we have freely received, and so we freely give. Our church has had an opportunity to meet a need for Mariasa, as I mentioned before, a pastor in Bali, Indonesia, whom our members Mark and Roz have supported for a while. And our hope is that connection might yield more fruit between churches, between bodies of Christ. And notice also how the focus here is in helping the poor in the church. As Christians, we ought to be concerned about and seeking to address the needs of the poor in our cities wherever we are able. Yet in the New Testament, we see concentric circles of responsibility. We must first ensure we look after our families, and then those in our local church, and then those in other churches, and then whomever God puts in our path in our world. No single church or Christian has unlimited resources And as I mentioned, especially in today's world where there are just so many churches and Christians in the world. And so we must ask God for wisdom in how best to do that. But it is something that we ought to and must strive to continue to do. Because we recognize that while we were still enemies, while we were still poor in spirit, Christ came and died for us. And this is an outworking of that very grace that has been shown to us. So, brothers and sisters, do you know of someone or a church in need of financial assistance? If so, please let us know. That is exactly how we found out about the need at Mariasa's church. 
And one of the best things about caring for the poor in this way is that we can trust the church looking after them, or when we can trust the church, then we can have great confidence in where our money is going. As great as it is to support organizations that relieve poverty, it is something that, if it is something that we can do through a local church, then that's even better. And so we serve the saints by giving to the poor, especially in those churches that we know. And we serve them by helping those who go, which takes us to our next section. Paul now moves on to talk about his travel plans. In Acts chapter 16, Paul sees a vision of a man telling him to come to Macedonia. And so after passing through Macedonia, which is my current plan, he says in verse 5, I'll come and see you guys. And you know what? Maybe I'll even stay with you for a little while or even spend the winter. Now, kids, have any of you experienced winter? Put your hand up if you have. Oh, wow, really? (laughs) I honestly thought it would be more than that. (laughs) But there you go. Well, the kids who have not experienced winter, you're you're really not missing much. Uh, You know, winter can, can be fun. You know, snow can be fun. Um, but winter can be a very miserable and challenging time, not to mention cold, very cold. I mean, if you think the dry season is cold, that is nothing. And in Paul's day, winter also made it very difficult for traveling. You know, these days we have cars and planes that are sealed and have heaters, so we don't really have to worry about it when we're traveling. But back then... If Paul arrived in the wintertime, then it probably made more sense for him to stay and to wait it out before continuing on his journey. And not only that, as he says in verse 7, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. You see, Paul is wanting to encourage and instruct the Corinthians to spend some time with them. But you notice he adds at the end of that sentence, if the Lord permits. And that captures the heart of what Paul is saying in this section. You might remember James uses a similar phrase uh, in his letter in chapter 4. And as I said when preaching through James, I am a happy advocate for us to use that phrase. And my kids even used it this week. I was very thankful, very, very proud. But far more important for us than just using the phrase, is for us to embody the kind of open-handedness with our lives and with our plans that surrenders them to God's will. Notice Paul's language in this section. Perhaps I will stay with you. You may help me on my journey wherever I go. You see, people in the ancient journey, sorry, ancient journey, people in the ancient world, especially those traveling, knew this perhaps more keenly than we do. You might make a plan to travel here or to sail to another city, but anything from wild seas to illness could flip that plan upside down. It's important to keep this in mind for ourselves, especially as we come to the next couple of verses. Let's read from verse 8. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost... For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. How many of you have heard the phrase, 
God doesn't close a door without opening a window. Anyone heard that? A few. You know, different people mean different things by that phrase, but usually it means that if God shuts down one opportunity, then He is going to open up another one. And personally, I've always wondered why it's a window that God opens and not just another door. But, you know. I've also always wondered about how biblically faithful the phrase is. This whole idea of God opening doors is certainly a biblical one. There are four instances in the New Testament where this phrase is used. You'll find them in Acts chapter 14, verse 27, here in 1 Corinthians 16, in 2 Corinthians 2, 12 to 13, and in Colossians 4 to 3. And in each of these references, it refers to an opportunity for gospel ministry. Yet incredibly, this has developed into a theology of its own. No, no one, not one that you will find in theology textbooks, but one that you will find on the street in the everyday lives of Christians. You see, many today seek to be led by open doors. Some will wait for what they would call an open door, which means some kind of confirmation or some kind of clear path in something that they are pursuing. And the term has gone from meaning, as it does in the Bible, an opportunity for gospel ministry to some kind of divine rubber stamp on a particular pathway that the Christian is considering. Now, we ought to be careful with this because it's playing loose with how the Bible uses the term. Not only that, but in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 to 13, Paul very clearly says that God opened a door for him, which he then chose not to walk through. His spirit was not at rest, not at rest so he took leave and did not go. Now, many of us today would find that shocking. If God opens a door for you, why on earth would you not walk through it? Well, that's only problematic if you have that other definition of what an open door is. When we understand that an open door is simply an opportunity for gospel work and ministry that God has enabled, well, then it frees us to see that God has given us wisdom and His Word to discern whether we ought to take those opportunities or not. Your life is not a game show where God is the host and He presents you with a range of doors. Well, let's see what life holds for you behind door number one. You don't need that kind of anxiety in your life to think, well, what if I'd walk through door number three? No, that is not God's desire for you. No, as Proverbs 3, 6 says, in all your ways, acknowledge Him. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He will make your paths straight. Whether that involves walking through the door of gospel ministry that God has opened for you or not. In this case, Paul chose to walk through it. This work in Ephesus that Paul is referring to very well might be uh, what we read about in Acts chapter 19. And we also read about some of the adversaries in that chapter idol makers of Artemis. I'll leave you to go and explore that. The point is, God has opened this door for effective ministry to Paul in Ephesus, 
And he would like to make the most of it and stay until Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover. In the meantime, Paul hopes to send Timothy to them. This is the same Timothy that Paul wrote a couple of letters to in our Bibles. They're called First and Second Timothy, rather appropriate names, I think. Now, it's possible that Timothy delivered this letter of 1 Corinthians, but given these verses, I think it's more likely that he came a little bit later. Now, Paul wants the Corinthians to put him at ease. Now, we should ask, why is that? Another way that the NIV translates it is, is uh, to, to um, make sure that he has nothing to fear. Now, if you want to put somebody at ease, it's normally because they're anxious or scared. Now, kids, have you ever been scared of a wet season thunderstorm? Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I, they freak me out. And so your parents might put you at ease by, you know, wrapping you up in their arms or closing all the doors and windows in the house to make sure that you don't get the, the thunder. And given what Paul says about the Corinthians' quite negative attitude towards him at the start of this letter, it may very well be that they would have treated Timothy very poorly because of their low regard for Paul. Uh, we don't know this for sure, but it seems to make good sense of what we know of the relationship between the Corinthian church and Paul himself. And so let no one despise him, Paul says. Help him on his way in peace. Makes you wonder if Paul had this in mind when he wrote his letter to Timothy and said, do not let anyone despise you because you are young. The word Paul uses here and in verse 6 for helping is often used in the New Testament to describe sending a traveler on their way with provisions. That might be money or other supplies or companions for the journey, which makes sense of why Paul is expecting him to come with the brothers who are presumably people from the Corinthian church. And here we see yet another way that we as Christians serve the scattered saints. Those who go as laborers of the gospel to places where it is yet to be preached or where there is effective work happening ought to be supported by local churches. Now, this week we had a video call with Chris and Iris, a couple who are preparing to work as missionaries in Asia, and our elders are proposing that we support them, which is something that we'll talk about at our next members' meeting. And once again, the way that we support those who go looks different today. Now, we have different and more technologies available to us to make this sort of thing happen. Chris and Iris have never even been to Darwin, and yet here, it is, here we have the opportunity to be able to support them. The heart of what Paul is doing and instructing the Corinthians in, in this section remains. How can we support such workers who go, not just financially, but in other ways where we help them, in providing, in encouragement? Andy Johnson, in his great little book on missions, has an excellent chapter on short-term missions trips and how they can actually be useful I recommend you check out his book. He tells this great story of one time when members of his church did this. I remember a trip to Central Asia where some of our church members from Washington, D.C. were caring for missionary kids during a training meeting. It wasn't especially exciting or fun. The meeting place was run down. 
But one afternoon, a missionary couple came to me almost in tears. They had just figured out that the person sitting on the dusty floor playing with their two-year-old and changing diapers all day was a White House official. Say what you want about worldly power and importance. For the missionary couple, the idea that someone on a first-name basis with the U.S. president would use vacation time to serve them so humbly was a huge encouragement. Are any of us really too busy or important to serve missionaries like this? Did not Christ go, come to us? Do we really think that our lives and what we are doing is more important? I hope in the not too distant future, we might be able to serve overseas workers in this or other ways that are useful to them. Perhaps a few of us could go to Bali or to other parts of Asia to serve workers that we support financially. Perhaps there are ways that we could encourage, bring them here. I, I don't know, all sorts of different ways. The church, please keep these things in your prayers and prayerfully consider when the opportunity arises serving them in some way that encourages them and helps them on their way. Now, before we finish this section, sorry, before we finish this section, we get to verse 12. Now, the ESV separates it into a different section under a different heading, but I think it actually goes more with this section, with verses 5 to 11. It separates it because Paul introduces this with his characteristic, now concerning. You might remember that, Uh, from other parts of our series in 1 Corinthians, where he uses it to introduce topics that the Corinthian church has likely written to him about. So it's quite likely that they have asked Paul about Apollos and when he's coming to visit. But I think it still belongs with this previous verse because Paul is talking about co-laborers coming to visit the Corinthians. And once again, we don't know exactly what is sitting behind this verse, But you might remember that the major issue that Paul dealt with near the beginning of this letter was the fact that some Corinthians were boasting in some teachers. You know, remember, some say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, over others. And because of that background, I think it's fair to suggest that Apollos is probably aware of this going on, and he doesn't want to inflame that situation further. And so that's why it's not at all his will to come. Now, kids, have you ever tried to pit mum and dad against each other? <laughs> yeah, you, you try that, you know, like, it, it lo- often looks like this. But mum, dad let us have ice cream the other day. I mean, you, you don't want to be known as the stingy parent, right? Right? I mean, of course not. None of you guys would do that, would you? Would you? Would you? If you would, don't do it. That's kind of what's happening here. My kids know that if they try that, it doesn't work. Mum and dad, they know they're on the same team. They still try. You know, this, this is what seems to be what's happening with Paul and Apollos and the Corinthian church. 
Notice how Paul actually strongly urged Apollos to go. There's obviously no beef between the two of them. It seems pretty clear that it was the Corinthians who were trying to drive a wedge between the two of them. Favoritism never helps anyone. Well, off the back of this, Paul gives a bunch of instructions, which takes us to our next section. Give recognition to leaders. These instructions of Paul's, especially in these next couple of verses, are short, sharp, and very manly. They sound like fighting words. And if you're a desiring God reader, you'll be picturing this as somebody wearing a beard, apparently. (laughs) These are the kinds of instructions that you would hear on a battlefield. Like watchmen at the city gates, be alert and look out for any threats that might be coming. Warn the city, warn your family when you see them coming. Stand firm in the faith so that you are not bowled over by the enemy, so that you are not blown over by the the gales of false gospels. Act like men is a more literal translation of the Greek, meaning be courageous. Even if you're feeling scared, trust in the Lord and fear Him alone. Be strong, even when you feel weak. Remember that when you are weak, He is strong. All of these call to mind the many commands in the Old Testament that were given by leaders of the Israelites, usually when they were preparing for battle. Joshua 1.6 is one such example. As Josh shared with us in, in Philemon, Paul calls him his fellow soldier. And we shouldn't be surprised that this kind of language is being used by the apostles. Following Christ is a battle We wage war on our own flesh. We need to be watchful and on our guard against Satan who roams around like a lion seeking to devour faithful believers. In Ephesians 6, Paul makes use of this imagery imagery even more clearly when he charges the Ephesians to put on the full armor of God. And again, knowing what we know about the Corinthians and their tendency to drift from the faith. It's not surprising that Paul pounds this again. We've seen him give similar commands a few times as we've worked our way through chapter 15. Stand in the faith, this gospel in which you stand. Stand firm knowing that your labor is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, this is a crucial component of what it means to follow Christ. Do you think there are no enemies at the gate? I can't see them. Be watchful. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Do you feel your feet slipping or your grip loosening? Stand firm in the faith. Remind yourself of the gospel daily and build your life upon it. As you feel yourself slipping and grip and, and, and drifting, hold fast to the faith. Do you fear the challenges that are ahead of you? Are you fearful of unknown futures, potential failures, or the opinions of others? 
Be courageous. Remember that the Lord is on your side and He fights for you. Do you feel yourself weakening and crumbling under the weight of the world that is dragging you before its idols? Be strong in the Lord. The Christian life is a battle. There is no denying or escaping that. And if you feel weak and insufficient for it, if you feel like Steve Rogers before he had the super soldier serum, you think to yourself, I'm not cut out for this. Then come and join the ranks of your fellow soldiers. We are all in that same cohort. But when we hope in the gospel, when we stand firm in the faith, God is with us in the battle. This is the wonder, the beauty of our faith, that we do not stand by our own strength, but we stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and of His words. Look to Him. Perhaps you're the kind of person who loves that sort of language. Yeah, come on, bring it. Let's go to spiritual war. I'm ready. I'm ready to take the fight to the devil and to take him out myself. Well, Paul reminds us that that is not the only crucial component of following Christ. As verse 13, 14 says, let all that you do be done in love. You don't have to go too far in God's Word before you find Him talking about love. Paul calls back to mind all that he wrote in chapter 15, that great love chapter, commanding them once again to do everything in love. Love, after all, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love ought to characterize our lives. Even as we contend for the faith, even as we battle as Christian soldiers on the field, love ought to be leading the way in all of our actions. And this is certainly true about saints with whom we break bread each week. And perhaps even more so when it comes to saints more broadly. You see, it's easy to love those with whom you agree. I'm sure you've recognized this. When you're on the same page with a fellow brother or sister, and when you're in the same church, the relationship is easy, and the conversation flows freely, and there is little tension. That's not so much the case when you disagree on things, is it? And it only gets harder the deeper the disagreement. Doing everything in love will change not just what you say and do, but how you say and do it. Especially in these very divided times, it's tempting for us to do what the world does and treat every difference of opinion as a cause for suspicion and separation. Surely you feel it. 
We're being conditioned to form a quick opinion about someone or something and hold on to it, regardless of what further evidence might change your mind. We search the internet for opinions from people we know who will confirm our prior prejudices, and we hastily mark people as heretics or as harmful. I know that feeling. I did it this week and was rebuked by the passage. But that is not the way of love. Love believes, love hopes, love endures. It's much harder to patiently listen and to seek further understanding. Is there a brother or sister you need to redouble your efforts of love with? Now, to be clear, marking someone who is a heretic or harmful is a loving act of watchfulness and standing firm in the faith. It does an army no good for a commanding officer to naively believe an enemy spy or take the advice of a rookie soldier. That will get the whole battalion killed. But in spiritual warfare, and especially against those who profess faith, love demands patience and willingness to walk a while with them. Brothers and sisters, follow the way of love. Recognize that when we do need to protect the sheep from the wolves, we do so in love. Which kind of gets us to the next section. Let's read from verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. What does Paul urge the brothers and sisters to do? To be subject to such as these, and every fellow worker and laborer. Being subject uh, isn't an instruction that we fall over ourselves to obey these days. But when it's used in the New Testament to refer to human relationships, it nearly always is talking about authority. As we talked about a few weeks ago, 1 Corinthians is one of the earlier letters, and I think what we see here is a leadership structure in its early stages of formation. Another example of this would be Acts chapter 6, when we, the apostles tell the church to appoint men who would serve effectively as deacons ensuring that the giving and, and, and handling of uh, uh, widows and that sort of thing was taken care of. Well, I think there's a similar thing going on here. Stephanus and his household were the first converts in Achaia, meaning they had probably been believers for a while. And as we know from 1 Timothy, uh, a requirement for an elder is that they are not a new believer. And not only that, their maturity and their leadership were seen in their service of the saints. Stephanus had shown that he was devoted to the service of the saints. And this has always been a key characteristic of a Christian leader. They devote themselves to serving the saints. Both elders and deacons, the two leadership officers that Paul would clarify later in his letters to Timothy and Titus, are marked by sacrificial service. 
I love the wisdom of the Bible in this. I'm not going to get into a full-blown discussion about how it is that the congregation has final authority, but the elders still have an authority of counsel. You can talk to me about that later if you like. But I do want to point out that the reason that works is because of the gospel. You see, elders and deacons look to Christ, the very one who laid down his life for us. They look to him to be a shepherd like he is, the good shepherd. And so likewise, they lay down their lives for the sheep. Believe me when I say that if you were to assess these jobs of elder or deacon by modern standards of job satisfaction, they would not rate very well at all. But we work and we labor out of love for and in service to the brothers and sisters that God has placed under our care as under shepherds under our great shepherd. Where that is not evident or where one such as these fails in that standard or task, then you need not submit to us. And in the case of disqualification, you have the authority and the responsibility to remove us. But where that is the case, where qualified elders and deacons are devoting themselves to serving the saints, giving recognition to them, is the norm in Scripture. To be subject to them is the norm. If that is difficult for you, or, or if you have some concerns or, or questions about that, please do come and talk to your elders. I can guarantee that we will not say, no, you need to be subject to us and not challenge anything we say, just go away. Just be subject. And if there are things that we can do to enable that more for you, please let us know. I have certainly benefited from such feedback over the last couple of years from you. And brothers and sisters, if you just generally find the idea of authority difficult and something that you buck against, especially in church, let me encourage you to spend some time meditating on Hebrews 13, 17. You see, the solution to bad authority is not no authority. God's solution that we see in Scripture is good and godly authority. And in God's church, that happens through leaders who work and labor and devote themselves to the service of the saints, and in turn through saints who trust and submit to their leaders. Paul specifically names Stephanus and a couple of other travelers who visited him, and they refreshed his spirit. I love that word. Uh, you hear, it's used a couple of times in the New Testament to just refer to this, this sense of being encouraged and lifted up again by the presence of other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's fascinating, isn't it? Even in the midst of this strife and this tension in their relationship with Paul, there's obviously still some kind of affection and warmth between at least some of the Corinthians. And Paul is recognizing that these men, as fellow workers and laborers, and, uh, and instructing the Corinthians to recognize them, they come and refresh him. 
Such should be the case for Christians from other places. If you're ever on holidays somewhere, on a Lord's Day, or you're working in a different city where there's a Christian church, go and join them. Who knows how the Lord might use your presence to encourage and to refresh those saints. Which brings us to our final section. Greet in grace. I love this last section. I've told you that I love several of the sections. I just love, just love the Bible. Let's read from verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We don't know how much movement there was between these churches. Asia wasn't the same Asia that we know today, but a region that is part of what we now call Turkey. And Aquila and Prisca were fairly, fairly well-known disciples, so perhaps they had a bit of a reputation. And they, came, they come up reasonably often in the New Testament. Sometimes Prisca has the longer name of Priscilla. But the thing I love about this section is the warmth between these churches. They send hearty greetings. We think of hearty, oh, I do anyway, of like a hearty meal something that is just so comforting and, and warm and, and lovely and, and filling. And all the brothers, he says, all the brothers and sisters send greetings. Even if there wasn't a particularly strong relationship between the churches, there is this sense of togetherness. In this little interaction, you get the re- a sense of the recognition that this is a family that will last forever. Even if we live our whole lives distant from each other, never knowing or even seeing each other, we will worship around His throne together. We are one in Christ. How? Because we greet one another in grace. This isn't just a, a, a sense of, of saying hello and, and, and a kind of warm fuzzy that we like to give each other. The greetings that are given, these hearty greetings from all the churches come from a unity around the gospel, a unity around the grace that we have received and share with one another in Christ. How wonderful, how awesome that is that this local body could be part of a global, broader body all saved by grace. Whether you're in Halls Creek or Kananara or Dubai or Shanghai, we all share in that grace. Church, is this how we approach other Christians and churches? As I was preparing for this passage, I thought of the Presbyterian Church in Benzel, where our family attended for five months before going to the U.S. The pastor there, Gary, was incredibly kind to us, and we were very thankful for our time with them. Even though we don't keep in touch regularly, we have a warm relationship. I contacted him this week to ask how we could pray for them, and we'll do so later this morning. 
This is the kind of warmth that Christian churches should have with one another. But this raises some challenges in our day, doesn't it? We have 2,000 years of Christian history behind us, whereas Paul only had a couple of decades. Most of the churches in his day, you'd have confidence in as actual Christian churches. Now, I say most because it's not 100% as the letter of Galatians and parts of 1 Corinthians remind us, but the wolves of his day hadn't had many generations of honing their deception the same way that ours have. Now, we live in an era where there are all sorts of groups calling themselves churches, some of which are significantly large. What are we to do with that? How are we to think of greetings in grace of of anyone who might call themselves a Christian? Do we do what mauling lecturer Michael Frost did this week and post a picture of many different kinds of professing Christians and suggest that nobody has a right to assess whether somebody's profession of faith is credible? Well, the same goes here in obeying verses 13 and 14. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, be courageous and strong. And ensure that all our interactions, all our conversations, all of our assessments be done in love. With charity, with patience, and with clarity. Shepherds must feed the sheep and drive away the wolves. And sometimes a wolf can have a really good sheep costume. Paul himself models this in verse 22. He's not afraid of making clear that the consequences for someone whose life does not match their profession are severe. If there is no love, they are accursed. A very strong word that leaves no wriggle room for what he is talking about. Where another church preaches the same gospel, and we have confidence in that, then our attitude and affection towards them ought to be one of love and hearty greetings. Now, I understand that there's a lot of in-between. We've talked about theological triage the last few weeks, and that certainly applies here. There are going to be degrees of unity and partnership among churches depending on where those might be. But we ought to do this work to the best of our ability. Our our elders have sought to cultivate these relationships with other churches in Darwin as much as possible. I texted Josh Kazwadi from St. Pete's last week to ask about the GAFCON conference he attended. I hope to catch up with him soon to hear about how we can pray for him and for the Anglican Church in Australia. Richard Riley, has, a pastor of the Presbyterian Church, has been busy lately, but the three of us hope to get together and consider how we can better partner together for the gospel in Darwin. Braden has caught up with Norm Mangohig, the current pastor at MCF, to talk more about ways that we might be able to do this together with MCF. Josh serves, on the, uh, serves the churches of Darwin through his work at, with PeaceWise and also through the Christian Conventions Darwin organization. And he continues to connect with and support Christians from other churches. He meets up with Tony Jenner from AFES, for example. 
I'm sure you have more questions about how we are and how we can be doing this more in our city and with our churches in Darwin. And I hope that we can continue to talk about that. I hope that we can continue to pray about that, seek opportunities, discover ways where perhaps we are not doing as much as we could. And I hope that you too are striving in this work. And as we do, we must keep this picture of church unity and verses 13 and 14 at the front of our minds. May we send hearty greetings and encourage one another in the faith. And may we show that to one another with a holy kiss. Now kids, just to be clear, this is a holy kiss, not just any kind of kiss. The holy kiss was a sign that demonstrated love and affection in the church. Again, it's a cultural practice that need not be teleported into our context, like women wearing head coverings, but something that we ought to find a modern equivalent. Though in some churches, some cultures, particularly European or or Latin American ones, a holy kiss works just fine. But today, in our culture, probably not so much. As some of you know, I'm a huggy guy, and I think hugs express well this kind of warmth and love between brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think it's culturally appropriate for us to do that today. Now, I'm not forcing you to do it, even though some of you will argue that I am. And if I am, it is only because I have the relationship with you and I think it's okay. But it's worth thinking about, especially if you're not comfortable with that kind of thing. It's worth thinking about how you could express that same warmth and love in Christ, that greeting in grace with both Christians in our church and outside of it. So kids, holy hugs is what we encourage in our church. Sound good? Good. As Paul brings this letter to a close... He writes this greeting with his own hands to authenticate that it's him. And then he says a couple more interesting things. As mentioned before, he calls out the love, the one who has no love for the Lord. And then he uses this Aramaic phrase, Maranatha, which translates to our Lord come. This is the only place where you will find the word Maranatha in the Bible. In the uh, the Bible's last few sentences in Revelation 22:20 include a similar Greek phrase indicating that the early church worshipped him as God and expected him to come again. Now this isn't just a theological truth that we believe. If you would like to call out Maranatha at some point in our church gathering, you're welcome to do so. We cry out and we say, "Come, Lord Jesus." how our hearts long to see you, how we long for you to return, how we long for you to raise our mortal bodies to immortality, to do away with death and to do away with sin and to usher in your kingdom in all its fullness. That is our cry. That is Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Church, have you gotten a sense of the kind of communities of grace and love that we ought to live in and that we ought to live out? 
You are part of a family that has a home in the local church, but you are also part of a global family of believers with whom you can greet in grace no matter when or where you are, where the gospel is preached, where it is held to, where it is believed, where it is stood in. You have brothers and sisters in whom you can give hearty greetings. If you're here this morning, you're not part of a family like that, then we would love to adopt you in. We're all adopted. Adopted in by the grace of the Lord Jesus who demonstrated that to us on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, dying in our place so that through repentance and faith in Him, we might receive forgiveness for our sin. He rose again on the third day, uh, sorry, on the first day of the week. And we now look forward to his return. We cry out, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. We look forward to that day when he shall gather his church and raise them to life to be with him in eternity. Turn to him and trust him today. Brothers and sisters, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. I hope and pray that your love would increase for your brothers and sisters here and everywhere to all of our distant cousins, even the funny ones. I pray that we would serve the saints in the grace and the love of Christ, knowing that even all of them, no matter where or when they are, will be our eternal companions. How can we increasingly live that today? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so, so very thankful for the grace of the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that as we seek to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith, to be courageous, to be strong, that your grace would be our foundation, that this gospel, this good news would be what we plant our feet on. And Father, as we do that, may we go out and encourage the brothers and sisters. Father, Send to us, Lord, opportunities. Give us ways that we can do that with our brothers and sisters in Christ here in Darwin and around the world. Lord, may we be encouraged. May they be encouraged. And so may your body be built up. In Jesus' name. Amen.